0: each other for wealth, home leadership, and the affection of their children, many marriages ended in separation and divorce. And we don't even have to discuss that deal, unfortunately. Selfish individualism grows and is carried over into society, fragmenting into smaller and smaller loyalties for groups, and the nation is weakened by internal conflict. Have we seen that recently? And finally, unbelief in God becomes more comp- complete. Sorry, parental authority is diminished. Ethical and moral principles disappear, affecting the economy and government. Because of internal weaknesses and fragmentation, the society falls apart. We have more atheists in this country today than we've ever had in the history of our nation. Is it concerning from a Christian's per- perspective? Can I talk today, sir? From a Christian perspective, absolutely. Anytime someone does not believe in God, atheistic, this should be a concern to us, because that is a lost soul. It's our job to find and to convert lost souls. But it should also concern us as a nation. When the Founding Fathers began this country... And they started this republic, this democratic republic that we have. It was something that the world at that time had not seen in a long time. They had gone back to history and they had pulled what they thought were some of the best aspects of government and put them all together to create the country that we have today. And I'm sure you've heard about that probably in history courses and things like that. One thing you may not have heard about then the development of that and getting this country going and everything beginning to take place and working well they were visited from some dignitaries from france and france came over and said we like what you're doing we would like to take that and we would like to apply that to our people and our forefathers went off (coughs) went off and discussed it among themselves and came back to meet again with those dignitaries and said, It will not work in your country. And friend was kind of upset and said, What do you mean it won't work in our country? It's working here. We can duplicate everything that you're doing here. They said, Yes, you can, but it will not work because you have too many atheists in your country. Democracy will not stand in an atheist environment. There was a uh, visiting professor from China that came over and worked for a few months here in this country. And when he went back home, he made a statement. He said, I didn't understand the United States. I didn't understand your form of government and your people until I came over. He said, what I learned is your country works Because the individuals want it to work. He said they look to do what's right. And for the most part, that's true in this country, right? I mean, we do have problems. Every country has criminals. Every country has issues of unrest or whatever. But for the history of this country, the majority of the people here want to do what's right. They want to look out for their families. They want to look out for people in need. They want to help those that need help. He said, that's what makes it work. He said, it would not work in my country because our people do not feel that way. So as we decline into a more atheistic society, then we become less of what we were in the past and more of what these other countries are. But when we look through these things about the stages of decline, does it remind you of any country? Huh? Rome. Rome, exactly. That is those stages that we just discussed. There's seven of them are the ones that define the fall of the Roman Empire. And we seem to be duplicating those and repeating those exactly right down the line. So we need to look at history. We need to understand history. We need to make sure that we don't repeat those things. Going on a little further, The in the Old Testament describe the lives of men like Joseph, Job, Daniel, Nehemiah. They encourage us and they help us realize the idea of being a faithful servant to God is not just an ideal. It is reality. Just as those men did it in the past, we can do it today. The dispensation we're under may be different. But we can still follow God's commands as he lays them out for us, just like they followed theirs. The Old Testament tells us a special relationship between God and the Israelites. God took care of his people in the Old Testament time, and he takes care of his people today. But in the Hebrew history, he did not merely care for the Jewish people for their own sake. There are other things involved, right? So what was the purpose of the Israelite nation? When we read the Bible, we studied the Bible, and we studied that Old Testament scripture. Why did the Israelite nation exist? To bring forth Christ. Right, correct. The purpose was to bring forth Christ, to prepare the way for the coming of the Son of God. That was the reason for the Israelite nation. And Christ came when the time was right. Scripture tells us in Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. Okay. That scripture doesn't give us a specific date, does it? It doesn't say this many years after the creation of the world or this long after the creation of the nation of Israel, Christ was coming. It says Christ came forth in the fullness of time. In other words, when everything was appropriate. Right? We have to think of the things that were required for this. Christ came to be the sacrifice for our sins. So the environment that he came in had to be correct for that to occur, right? We look back at the scriptures and we've done a study on this time that Christ came and how things were going, how the people of Israel felt at the time, how the leaders of Israel were. When we look back at the high priest and the former high priest, right, at that time, corruption. The high priest was there at that time because his father-in-law, who was the former high priest, was removed from his position by the Roman government because of corruption. Normally... Rome did not get involved in the internal affairs of the Israelite nation, especially when it came to religion. As long as they weren't causing problems for Rome, it was fine. But the corruption was so bad, the Roman government even stepped in to make a change. So we can see from that, the type of men who were going to be in power when Christ came which would have brought about the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. So in the fullness of time, when the time was right and the time was appropriate. The old law the Ten Commandments were meant for Abraham's descendants, not for us today. We discussed that. Unfortunately, many religions hold on to this law, which was never meant for them in the first place. The Mosaic law was just part of God's plan for the salvation of mankind. It was a stepping stone To get us to Christ. His plan existed before the creation of the world and will last until the end of the world. God had a plan for the salvation of mankind. When did that plan begin? Right. It was the eternal plan, right? It existed before man was even created. We've gone over this a couple of times, I think, in some of our discussion before, is the fact that God created the plan before he created the world. And then before he created man. He knew mankind would sin. He knew mankind would fall away. But he still created us. And it was not a second thought. as taught by many religions. There are many religions out there that teach the fact that Christ was to come and he was to create a worldwide kingdom. And that failed. And so God set up the church to hold us over until that kingdom becomes reality. It's not what the scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that the plan that God had of Christ coming and dying and the salvation of us, the creation of the church, was the eternal purpose of God. It wasn't a second thought. It wasn't something that came along because his original plan didn't work. I have news for you. If God has a plan, it will work. And there's nothing we can do to interfere with it. The idea of the fact that we had done something as mankind that altered God's plan shows a very severe lack of faith in the power of God. There is no plan that God has put forth that He has not fulfilled. When you look back into history, we see, you remember the story about the, the nation of Tyre? Tyre had been a kind of a competition for the Israelite nation. And one of the things that they did is they took Israelite citizens and sold them as slaves. All right. That was God's people. God did not take kindly to this. So God's statement was that tire would be overtaken, that it would be scraped clean, and that nothing would ever be built on that location again. That plan, if I remember correctly, took about 700 years. But The city was invaded. They moved to an offshore island and they rebuilt their city. Alexander the Great came along. There wasn't any way to get to the island. So he scraped the ruins of the old city and built a bridge across to the new city, overtook it, wiped it out, and the survivors he sold as slaves. God has a plan. God is going to make sure that plan works. Sorry. When we read Acts here talking about Stephen's defense, we're going to look starting at verse 2. In our first section, we're going to read from verses 2 to to verses 8. Okay. Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And said unto him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out of the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there unto this land which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and would afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the twelve patriarchs. So he starts the discussion about Abraham, someone we're very familiar with. Stephen's defense was focused on God's dealing with his people and their refusal to follow his laws. Stephen could see his persecutors were repeating the attitude of unbelief that their forefathers exhibited. And he was determined to to make them show their true character before the people of Israel. And he began his discourse by reminding them of that promise to Abraham. God did not give salvation to Abraham. But a promise of the salvation that was going to come. It could not come from man, but it had to come from the Father. When we read about the Old Testament, we read that there were animal sacrifices. What was the purpose of the sacrifices? Just to roll the sins forward, right? Because the, the blood of animals, bulls and goats, could not atone for sin. So those sacrifices could not forgive the sins of mankind. But it rolled them forward until the coming of Christ, when they could be forgiven. He just kept kicking it down the road: Yeah. And then when we look, Abraham left the city of Ur, his people based only on the promise of God. He promised redemption and salvation of Abraham's descendants and the whole world. This is kind of a rendering of the city of Ur at the time of Abraham. When we look into this, we can see, let's see, right in here, you see where the water touched the land right there. That's where the city of Ur was located. It was a very prosperous city. It dealt in trade being on the edge of the water. The idea I'm trying to get across here is Abraham gave up a lot when he left the city. To travel to a place that he knew nothing about. That God told him would be given to your descendants. Not necessarily to you. But because God promised it, Abraham did it without question. Things have changed for her recently. When we look at the maps now, the waterfront does not come up to Ur. It's quite a distance from it. The city's not as prosperous as it used to be. But at that time, it was a very, very wealthy city. It was located on the southernmost portion of ancient Samaria. Chaldea contained riches beyond imagination at the time. And Ur was the wealthiest city in this area. That's what Abraham gave up when he left. When we look a little further, through the promise that was made to Abraham, Israel was to become a witness to God, to all the earth, about the truth of God. So, why was Abraham chosen? I mean, the world was full of people at this time. Why was this one man chosen? Because he had faith in God. Everybody, his father and everybody else, like even Lot's dad, was an idolater to the sun gods. That's one of them. He was faithful to God, right? What was another reason, similar to that, but a little bit different? His obedience, right? God said, pack your things, leave your family, move to this country. And he did. He didn't argue with God. He didn't ask why. When he was told to do it, he immediately did it. How many of us would do that today? We have our homes. We have a comfortable lifestyle. We have jobs. We have family and friends. How many would be willing to drop every bit of that and pick up today and move to a foreign country that we knew nothing about? When we get to put it in perspective, it makes a little sense, doesn't it? We'll go uh, back to the map here. Let's see, the right one. Okay, we're in this area, and Abraham had to travel. All up in here in this green area that you see, and then down over to here to get the land that was promised him. He didn't have a car, he didn't have a plane. The best he probably had was maybe a camel or a donkey. Had to take the family, had to take flocks, anything else that he owned with him, and make that trip. Talks about his dedication and his obedience. The promise was testimony to Abraham's devotion to God. Back. Oops. He had no quantifiable object in which to place his trust. He believed the word of God was as it was spoken to him, and he acted on it and in accordance with it. For those who would define faith as being just believing apart from obedience, James uses Abraham's faith as a classic example of the faith that obeys God. In James chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, we read, you believe, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active. Helped work together along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. We have so many in the world today in this country who tell us that faith only. All you have to do is believe and you'll be saved. But when we read this scripture here, and this is from the New Testament, not the old law, right? This is Christianity that we're reading. It says his faith was completed by his works. Faith has to be active. Otherwise, faith is dead. Right? We have certain things that we need to do. The scriptures tell us. What's one thing that was re- is required for us to do as Christians? Repent. Worship. What else? Repent. Repent. What else? Confess Jesus, Son of God. No? So, oh, but. The I'm sorry? Spread the Spread the gospel. <laughs> And they're also more practical, right? Are we not commanded to take care of orphans and widows? Are we not commanded to help those in need? To teach those that need teaching? If these things are commanded, are they not required? So we've named a number of things that are required from us by God, right? So, if there's one single thing I'm required to do as a Christian, then salvation cannot be by faith alone. And we've named quite a few here just in the last minute or two. Love thy neighbor, as I Love thy neighbor, absolutely. These are things that are required, they're not optional. I don't know how many. Um the last time I looked was a number of years ago and this in this country there were over four thousand different denominations. And it's only increased since then. Just in India they have twenty million thoughts. Huh? I'm not surprised. It's it's amazing to me. I've discussed this with some people before of different religions. <laughs> How so many denominations can teach such different things, but yet they all agree that everybody's right, and in some cases they can they can teach completely opposite things, but yet they're both right. I don't understand that logic. Well, further we go, with Jacob. We skip a little bit here in in, um, in Stephen's writing, but. Okay, beginning at verse 9, "...the patriarchs jealous of Joseph sold him in Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. Now our fathers could find no food, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit." And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers, and, all they, were, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for some of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So now we're on Isaac. I mean, Jacob, we skipped Isaac in Stephen's writing. So we don't discuss a lot about Isaac, but when we look back, we realize the fact that Isaac was the son of Abraham. He isn't discussed much here in Stephen's speech. He was born in Bersheba and lived his early years there. Bersheba was named after the well of oath that was dug by Abraham and so named because he and Amalek entered into a compact there. Isaac died at the age of 180 in Hebron, which is one of the most ancient cities in the world still existing. It was one of the favorite camping grounds of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob dwelt there. And it was there that Abraham bought a tomb, the cave of Machpelah. After the occupation of the land of Israelites, Hebron became one of the cities of refuge and was David's first capital. And then from there we go on to Jacob, the son of Isaac, lived in Goshen in Egypt. It lay on the east of the Nile and apparently not far from the royal residence. It was in Genesis 47, talked about it was the best of the land, lying between the eastern part of the delta and the west border of Palestine. It was a pastoral district where some of the king's cattle were kept, but now is a desert. When we look at Jacob, we understand that He, like us, was an imperfect man. When he was born, he was described as the usurper or a schemer. But God used him to bring about his will just as he can use us today to do the same. There were two characteristics that dominated his life, a sly, deceptive nature and a quest for spiritual things. As his spiritual side grows, his deceptive side diminishes. And it's kind of true with us too. Isn't it? As we get older, then our appreciation for religion gets stronger, does it not? A lot of times we're kind of impetuous in our youth and we do things that we, when we look back as we're older, wish we hadn't have done. But when we're young, we think we're invincible, right? Think we can do anything. And we think we don't need anyone else's help. But as we get older, we understand that we've always needed God's help. And we were very fortunate that he looked out for us in those times when we were younger. <laughs> but Jacob was imperfect just like us. He had The characteristics we talked about, he and his family lived in Goshen before traveling to Egypt. Jacob was not necessarily a good father. We look a little bit further. We see here where Goshen was, the green area that you see at the top of the map, the top of Egypt, a very fertile area. And that's where the Israelites and where Jacob lived. Um, As we talked about, we see here Jacob and Isaac. He was not necessarily a good person in his younger years. He wasn't a good father. Preferential treatment that he gave to Joseph fostered hatred within his own family. And as a leader of the family, that should have been something that he had been very careful about. And he should have taken care of. He had many sons. But to prefer one over the other caused the issues that we read about in the scriptures. where Joseph was sold into slavery. God used that in order to bring about his will. But I can't help but think if his actions as the father would have been different. God could have still brought about his will in a different way. God used this unfortunate situation to bring about his will in regard to Israel, which would have been providence. God established Joseph to save all his family and to begin the Israelite nation. We can see much in Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you may even be able to see yourself in one of the patriarchs. When we look at them, we look at Abraham... You had a life filled with challenges and changes which required a great faith. This may be true. You may be the first person in your family to convert to Christianity. And there may be challenges and there may be changes in your life because of that. With Isaac, you may have grown up in a Christian home and are continuing your family's heritage of faith. It was different for Isaac than it was for Abraham. Abraham made sure of that. And then finally, Jacob, maybe you've needed a lot of work from God maybe you struggle with doing things your way instead of God's way and I think all of us suffer to that to some extent Um, human nature really to kind of go our own way and, and do the things that we want to do but we need to learn that we have to put that aside and we have to do what God wants us to do so we'll stop there at that point and then we'll pick up again next week and finish this out thank you